for different problems. Scientists come, again, going back to that spectrum, right? Scientists think about things in terms of their models, right? And so this is a purely science-driven approach, um, where statisticians think about things in terms of just data, purely data-driven approach with little science. And I would like to see a conversation, right? Perhaps not a debate, but a conversation, a discussion about, you know, where is that optimal point in the uh, in between science-based and data-based learning, right? Uh, which will give you the most bang for your buck, right? Uh, give you the most efficiency for uh, uh, and the maximum power for the the data that you observe, which in many cases is very expensive. Um, and this conversation, I think, really is domain specific. Um, and it relates, you know, it, it can sort of spur a lot of interesting developments in both the statistical modern literature as well as, you know, how we perform the sort of scientific discovery pipeline, right? Because it, it involves thinking about, well, what information should I integrate, right? And maybe it's not all of the information because if I integrate all of the information, I'm basically back at the beginning with the scientific model being too expensive, right? But think about what information we can integrate, what information is important, right? And how do we sort of integrate that model in and give you scientific conclusions which are interpretable, right? Are efficient and, you know, are, are, are useful, right? Um, so, you know, I think that's one area where it really deserves further discussions between scientists and statisticians. And I think, uh, you know, you know, I think both sides have to be sort of open-minded and sort of thinking about how, you know, how we integrate aspects from the other side uh, in terms of building, you know, workflows that are, you know, that that can be used uh, in light of these, you know, very expensive, very sophisticated, but very expensive experimental procedures. Hi, everyone. Today's guest is Simon Mack from Duke University. Simon's research is in integrating scientific knowledge into AI and machine learning models. And I think what he really epitomizes is uh, the sort of a creative, scientific, critical thinking. Um, furthermore, uh, Simon is, does some of the best statistical presentations that I have seen. If the Occupy movement were directed at statistical presentations, they'd be coming after him because he's definitely in the upper 1%. Um, so Simon, welcome to the show. I'm really looking forward to this conversation today. Yeah. Thanks for having me. This is really exciting. Yeah. So, um, just on the topic of integrating domain knowledge into AI machine learning algorithms, you know, anyone who's listened to a single presentation has known that like experts always emphasize this thing with, you know, important of using domain knowledge, uh, to get started. And, um, this usually comes in the form of like data collection or data wrangling, or you know how to interpret a model, things like that. But um, your work definitely seems like crank it up to eleven, where basically you're directly embedding or interfacing with the physical or mechanistic principles of the. We'll just call it the stuff that you're working on because it's quite varied. Um, so how would you say that? Like, how is your work different from just saying I keep the domain knowledge in mind when modeling? What what, what differentiates your approach? That's a great question. Um... <clears throat> I think one of the things that really differentiates, you know, this this idea of just integrated domain knowledge is that, you know, in a lot of the problems um, that I work on, uh, there's really this need for integrating more information in order to allow the problem to be solved. So, uh, one example is this problem that I've worked on, you know, 
on uh, building uh, new, you know, next generation rocket uh, engines for spaceflight, right? Um, and this, you know, this idea of building new rockets is, you know, very expensive process, right? So uh, if we're going to think about changing different parameters, um, then, you know, uh, we have to think about, well, do I want to prototype new rocket and then, you know, test it out using physical experiments? Or do I want to build it on the computer and then test it out using virtual experiments? And in both of these cases, you know, the testing procedure is very, very long, right? So um, very expensive, very long. And oftentimes we can only get, you know, uh, it can take millions of CPU hours, billions of dollars in prototyping costs, right? So we can only have maybe five or 10 data points. Data, the data that we get from these you know, engineering problems is very, very little. Um, and that's really, you know, from a statistical perspective, right? You know, this is one of the things that we, we were uh, challenged with in the project is if you have five data points or 10 data points and you want to do prediction, perform prediction over a high dimensional space, there's nothing in statistics that would allow you to do that in, in, a, in a feasible way, right? If you only have five or 10 data points. And that's really where the science really comes back in, right? It's necessary in terms of improving your predictive models. And, uh, and oftentimes I like to think about this from like a Bayesian perspective, right? So the idea is that, well, I have actually more information than I think I do, right? Um, the scientists which generate the data, you know, the underlying mechanistic models, uh, underlying physics for the problem, um, can sort of serve as prior knowledge, which we can integrate into a Bayesian model. And that can add in additional information, right? Uh, which can supplement the five or 10 data points that I observe, right? Uh, so this, this idea is really necessitated, right? Uh, this integration of scientific information as priors um, is necessitated by a lot of these very, very expensive sort of experimental problems. And without the science, uh, the problem is, you know, uh, quite frankly, you know, uh, infeasible uh, from a computational or a, uh, you know, uh, a budget perspective. Yeah. Yeah, I definitely like to come back to this issue of uh, the computational infeasibility and, you know, where it becomes a black box. But uh, just to begin with, you know, you mentioned physics and uh, physics is obviously the most obvious domain where you can just have these strong enough domain knowledge to uh, incorporate into the modeling. But is there a boundary cutoff where you can basically say, like, my domain knowledge is sufficiently strong versus I don't know enough? Um, That's a I'll just question. basically say, like, well, because, you, you know, the example, it's like, well, I'll just make sure that my model doesn't conflict with reality or common sense. And I view that yours, your work is on like a different plane than that. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's a great question. Um, so I work more in the area of engineering statistics and, you know, uh, statistical modeling with physics applications, right? And it's indeed, you know, in, in these applications where in a lot of cases, you know, the scientist knows, um, you know, at least the models that they use, you know, a lot of the the, uh, the, the basic principles, they know with uh, uh, quite amount of certainty, right? Um, you know, for example, if I drop a ball, right, and it goes down to, the, uh, you know, drops down to the ground, um, I know a lot of the physics that goes on there, right? And this is in contrast to a lot of uh, work in the biological sciences where, uh, you know, there could be many, many competing theories um, and, because of that, right, it's much more difficult to integrate uh, in the sense that, I'm, you know, I'm working on uh, uh, um, integrating some of the scientific knowledge into the analysis. Um, so uh, it, as an extreme point, you know, one of the the, the, the areas that I work on is called uh, computer experiment emulation, right? And this is where, you know, we're actually um, 
so you can sort of think about it. Uh, let me sort of uh, extend that rocket en uh, uh, engine example there, right? Um, I can build a rocket engine directly in the computer, right? I can program it in. And then I can solve the underlying uh, PDE equations, right? Um, to at least, you know, uh, simulate what might happen within the rocket, right? During spaceflight. Now, the scientist has to code this in themselves, right? There, There's a certain set of uh, PDE, certain set of uh, mechanistic equations that they have to code in, right? Um, but in order to solve one of these systems, right, it can take, easily take millions of CPU hours. But the data generation procedure, like the, the actual science there is known with certainty because the scientists use those principles to generate the data, right? Uh, and in those cases, right, integrating that type of prior information, you know, uh, would definitely help, you know, uh, would definitely benefit, right, uh, the predictive model. Uh, whereas in cases where you observe, you know, the data in reality and you have to postulate some sort of theory uh, or some sort of uh, a scientific uh, prior knowledge there, um, that might be, you know, you might have to, you know, investigate that a little bit more carefully about, you know, whether or not I can actually trust this model, whether or not the principles actually hold, uh, and that's going to be a more complex topic, yeah. Yeah, um, sort of, I, it, it, does, it also seems to me where essentially you have these very like mechanistic models, uh, the types that you're starting with, you know, the, the rocket engine uh, work that you did, uh, which by the way, creates some like very beautiful images. Um, <laughs> and um, and then maybe just like on the other extreme of the spectrum, uh, we have these like highly phenomenological models where effectively just like features, correlation, pop it out, you know, and... Uh, but you've also worked on things, for example, with like your aortic, um, the uh, aortic modeling, where effectively your scientific baseline is actually empirically derived. So effectively, you have this essentially this empirically derived function, but you also have some physics behind it as well. Um, and so, is there? I know this is super murky, but like, is there any type of cutoff or any sort of like decision zone where you'd be like, okay, this is too? Uh, phenomenon based versus mechanistically based. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and that really, uh, in, you know, in 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 all, uh, you know, and in, in, in any form of the sort of science integrated model, uh, there really has to be a conversation with the scientists, right? A close discussion uh, about, look, you know, what type of prior information can we leverage into the problem, right? Um, and how certain are you about that, you know, prior knowledge? Right. And I think that's where, you know, uh, a Bayesian perspective of the problem again really comes into play because we can set the strengths of our priors, right, uh, based on the, the scientist's prior knowledge. Now, again, going to the extreme of the, the case where we have, you know, these virtual experiments, right, where the underlying sort of uh, physics are already coded in, and that's part of the data generating model, right? Uh, in that case, you know, I can use those principles um, as long as they can integrate within the predictive model nicely, right, uh, with certainty. I would imagine in other cases, uh, definitely in the biological setting, which I don't work too much in, uh, you know, it's a much more challenging area uh, for some of this work because, uh, like you said, you know, there are many competing models. Um, and, um, you know, the science is still to be discovered in a lot of these cases, right? Um, in these cases, you know, one would have to do a careful sort of inspection, you know, discussion with the scientists, maybe hypothesis testing of some of the science first before you integrate that into your predictive model. Right? And I think that also opens up, you know, perhaps a, uh, a really interesting area as well, which is look, you know, 
if I were to do hypothesis testing of certain scientific models, right, uh, with the goal of integrating some of that information within prediction, um, then how would I do so in a statistical fashion, right? Um, and that really goes back to what type of sciences, what type of scientific information are we integrating in, right? Uh, so I've done a little bit of work um, on, you know, on hypothesis testing, you know, uh, for sort of shape constraints, which one can view as sort of scientific information, right? Uh, for example, if I drop a ball, right, and it falls down to the floor, right, um, there's some sort of monotonicity going on there, right? The ball's not going to magically jump back up in the middle of the air. Um, and that quote-unquote science, even though it's quite sort of intuitive, right, uh, it can be viewed as a, a shape constraint, right? And therefore, you know, if we wanted to test whether or not this phenomenon holds in practice, right, sort of translates back to the problem of testing whether or not shape constraints, uh, certain shape constraints uh, hold, right, uh, statistically. Um, so there's a, you know, there's an interesting line of work there, definitely. But that has to be sort of done before we integrate that information within predictive models. Hey folks, we're a few minutes into the show. This is usually the part where the podcaster talks about their sponsor or something. I'm not gonna do that, but I will ask two things. One, if you leave a like or a dislike based on your preference, and also let me know what you think about this topic and also what topics you like discussed on future episodes of the show. That's it, enjoy the episode. That's cool. That would actually be um, maybe for a future conversation as that type of work develops, because it, it'd be cool to... Um, Here's some of the more challenging examples of that where effectively you are trying to first hypothesize and learn essentially the essential science that's required. And then you go the next step of actually yeah. including it in the model. Um, so yeah, now, maybe sort of a, well, one more, one more point on this. Yep. Uh, I think that's okay. Um, and I think the, the idea of sort of testing for constraints, right? Testing for whether or not scientific principles hold. I mean, this might not be scientific principles, but this might be sort of economic principles, you know, uh, in the area of finance, right? Certain pricing principles that we follow. Um, and this is actually quite interesting in the area of finance, because if we're thinking about testing for constraints there, then, you know, the violation of these constraints actually mean profit opportunities, right? Uh, so, you know, this type of idea really sort of extends to a lot of, uh, different areas beyond, you know, uh, you know, maybe the the standard sort of uh, scientific applications, right? Yeah, that actually uh, just off the top of my head, it reminds me of uh, one of those ways that you could use like a linear program to identify arbitrage scenarios, where effectively, yeah, you just pop it, and if it never converges, then effectively you've <laughs> it's something like that where you found an arbitrage scenario. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Cool. Um, just uh, sort of to loop back on this one thing, like uh, when we talk about scientific knowledge that we have and we don't have. Um, there's a point at which we will call certain things black boxes. And I guess sometimes that's a knowledge component. Um, and then I guess other times, you know, it could actually just be a computing burden where effectively it's black box simply because we lack the computational ability to run such a sophisticated thing. So effectively you could run the direct simulation, but it takes so long, it has to be black box. Um, what are sort of the considerations uh, there is it just essentially is like a bottleneck or whichever one you achieve first, it becomes a black box from there? Mm -hmm. No, that's a, that's a great question again. Um, and I think this actually relates a lot to some of the work that's actually been done on black box optimization, right? Uh, you know, the, the idea of black box optimization is, look, I have a certain objective function, which is 
which we consider to be black box because like you said uh, either we don't know a lot about it or it's just very computationally expensive right uh, and we try to optimize this um uh, objective function under these constraints now, there's actually been an interesting line of work uh, recently on what's called gray box optimization, in which one tries, right, to open the black box up a little bit, but not the whole way, right? And this is really, uh, you know, very much limited this idea of integrating some sort of domain knowledge um, on the black box such that we can model uh, uh, the function, right? And oftentimes, you know, that's where, you know, a lot of my research comes into play because uh, a lot of uh, in a lot of cases, when we're trying to integrate some of this information to make this uh, gray box, we would need probabilistic models which are flexible enough to integrate right, this type of uh, information. That's where a lot of these Gaussian processes come into play. Right? They're very flexible probabilistic models in which you can integrate a wide variety of prior information into there. Um, now, I would say, especially in the area, uh, the research that I do, um, where the data is actually very expensive to collect, right? Whether or not that be physical experiments or virtual experiments. Um, oftentimes, I mean, there's there's two reasons behind this, right? Um, the first reason uh, that we want to integrate some of the, this information and, in, you know, instead of considering everything as black box is we need to, right? Uh, you know, the project, uh, there's maybe like a million CPU hours for the project, but the program officer wants to see, you know, you know, the model work well and, you know, you get, you know, scientific conclusions up to a certain precision, right? Um, and if you have five to 10 data points, it's very difficult to do with just statistical methods. Um, and that's where we really have to sort of uh, talk with the scientists very carefully and integrate a lot of this information in such that we can get the, the objectives that we want. I think a different uh, perspective on this, a uh, different reason why we want to do this is we want to make the models interpretable as well. Right. So this, again, uh, th this goes back to the, the, the topic of interpretable machine learning, interpretable st statistical learning, right? Um, because oftentimes, you know, especially when we have limited data, the resulting model, so for example, if I, you know, again, I use the example of a ball dropping down to the floor and a sample at each time, you know, where that ball is at, right? Um, if I sample this very sparsely, then if I fit, a, you know, you know, uh, you know, some of these uh, very, you know, powerful machine learning models, right? You know, deep learning model, whatever. Um, it can very well say that, you know, the ball could drop down and then at a certain point in time where it's sparsely sampled, go back up a little bit, right? And go back down. It's just minimizing the prediction error, right? But then a scientist would take a look at that. And this, we had a lot of experiences with this in, in some of our projects, right? Uh, we learned from our mistakes, right? Uh, the scientist takes a look at that model and they say, look, I'm not going to use this because the ball is never going to go back up. You just be like, oh, no, 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 it's fine. It's fine. Uh, it's just yeah. a little wiggle yeah. in gravity. It's like right. gravity right. was there. Yeah. It wasn't, you know, it comes no, back. So as a set of situations, like well, you know, the objective function we're minimizing is the prediction error, right? And so in this case, you know, even though it gives you this really, and I'm using a very obvious example, right? But, uh, um, you know, physically, you know, some of these properties, you know, the scientists would look for before they use the model, of course, right? Um, it's not just a, a, a data crunching game. So in a lot of these cases, we want to make the model definitely interpretable um, and, 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 and match what the scientist uh, a priori believes if they have a, a strong belief on this, right? Um, and this, you know, this is another reason why we, you know, oftentimes, uh, at least for our projects, right, want to sort of open up that black box, right? 
um, such that the models that we get out, you know, that the scientists will be using for scientific inference uh, is something that will make sense to them. Yeah, uh, cool. Uh, before we go on, um, I was just wondering, like, you know, outside of the physics example that you just gave, you know, are there examples of integrating scientific theory into other machine learning models? So you, you mentioned like the econometrics type stuff, but I was wondering within the realm of science, are there any sort of really good examples of, uh, you think a little bit. So I worked on a couple of projects. I talked a little bit about this rocket uh, engine design project where the physicists have, you know, a lot of these fluid mechanic principles that they want to apply there. Um, I'm currently working on a project where this is, um, um, this is a performing, you know, predictive model of heavy ion collisions. And the idea why we want to study heavy ion collisions is to really form the basis of the formation of matter, right? Shortly before the big, uh, shortly after the Big Bang. So it's an important topic there. Um, but these simulations are very expensive. Now, in order to study some of this, right, you know, a lot of times we have to integrate uh, models of different accuracies of different scales. And that's, I think, a really key topic that's arising uh, in sort of this application, this sort of interface between science and statistics, right, um, is that given the computational cost and given sort of the advances in experimental technology and computing power, we're able to perform very, very sophisticated experiments, but at great costs, right? Um, and oftentimes, especially when we do a predictive model, we need more data, right? And so one way of getting more data is perhaps integrating the science. But another way of getting more data is why not just run the scientific models or run the experiments at lower accuracies, right? But uh, these experiments would be a lot faster, a lot cheaper. And then comes the statistical question of, look, I have experiments with high accuracy, experiments with low accuracy, maybe different types of lower accuracy. How do I integrate all of this together? Okay. And that's actually another area where, you know, this integration of science into statistical modeling really comes into play, right? Because in a lot of these cases, we're able to draw the connections between, you know, how a lower accuracy experiment is related to a higher accuracy experiment. We can model this thing probabilistically and model the correlations, right? Um, and integrating this scientific information to build uh, what we call this multi-accuracy, multi-fidelity prediction model uh, really relies on the scientific uh, information about model dependencies. So that's another area where, you know, the science really comes into play. Uh, and it, it's making an impact in, you know, a variety of different fields, definitely in physics, right? Uh, in terms of that nuclear physics example, the heavy ion collisions, uh, but also in terms of other forms of uh, uh, physics and engineering sciences, yeah. Yeah, actually on that, because um, one of the themes that I noticed in your work is that a large number of your applications essentially had to deal with um, handling science at different scales, essentially phenomena at different scales, where you would essentially have like these high, uh, like long length scale uh, components of your process where pre presumably there's very little variation and uh, effectively with little variation, it means that you don't need to run too many computations. And then there's these short length scales. So you can think about like the short length scale Gaussian process where you can have this high amount of variability um, within a short period of time. And effectively that means that you have to sample many, if, if, if there's a high derivative, you need to essentially sample frequently to figure out where things are. Um, right. And so it seemed like that's a common theme, you know, and also 
to me, it seemed like the um, that autocorrelational work that you did with the like different fidelities, where essentially you have the sort of like uh, a set of experiments where it's just like um, basic assumptions and then a subset of the outcomes on those. And then effectively you added more rigorous um, physical principles, like in a medium fidelity model, you would have like these idealized liquid mechanics um, and then in our fluid uh, mechanics. And then in the um, highly computational one, you'd have like the viscosity, like the viscous fluid mechanics and type of that stuff where effectively you move between these different fidelities. But to me, it seemed like a lot of those were essentially challenges with handling the data at different scales. Um, is, is there, to me, it seems like that, that has to be inextricable from the, the nature of science, where effectively we are, one of our big challenges between these different fields is we're effectively just trying to handle things at different scales. And it seemed like effectively, it's funny that someone working to embed scientific principles into this modeling effectively is trying to piece together, stitch together these different scales. It's as if you're essentially trying to combine the different disciplines, but you're doing it in a statistical or statistical fashion. Fashion, yeah. That's so. really where the challenge is in terms of building these models, right? Um, so, you know, some of the work that we do, right, is uh, dealing with predictive models, right? These multi fidelity models, um, but in many different ways. Uh, that we can imagine this from the sciences. So like you said, multi-scale is one aspect where we think about different scales of the experiments, right? Uh, and we have flexibility in changing these scales in the experiment. Um, another aspect is multi-stage um, multi experiments, right? So you can sort of imagine uh, the case where we have this, uh, you know, heavy ion collisions problem that we're working on, uh, where we have two, ion, uh, two heavy ions, right? Um, colliding with each other, right? and near light speeds. Now, this simulation is clearly going to be in parts, like if we're going to code this up on the computer, right? We start off with these things, you know, uh, 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 you know, shooting at each other with heavy, very, very high speeds, colliding, right? And, you know, the, the nuclear theory says, you know, when they collide, you know, uh, we can sort of model uh, the plasma that's created using fluid dynamics, right? And once this collides, um, and then this plasma, what we call the quark gluon plasma forms, um, in this, you know, very, I think, um, you know, very, very small timescales, right? It rapidly cools down into matter. So that's really, you know, uh, the, the plasma is what's theorized to be uh, present, you know, shortly after the Big Bang, this rapidly cooled into matter, right? But you can imagine this, uh, this type of uh, simulation procedure is definitely in multiple stages, right? We have to set up the, the collision, we have to let the collision happen, and then we have to let it cool down. And at many of these different stages, we would use different physics models, right? multiple stages, right? And these different physics models, all of them can be run at different stages, right? And so the, the challenge is really to integrate, you know, uh, trying to sort of put the scientist's modeling uh, mind, right, uh, from the physics into the statistical model and think about how to sort of model linkages in that fashion, right? Uh, so there's a lot of different ways that we can have these sort of multi-fidelity experiments, um, but integrating them, you know, within, um, in a way that respects the science within a probabilistic model is one of the you know, really interesting areas that, you know, is really finding a lot of uh, cool applications in the, in, in you know, the physic, physical and engineering sciences, yeah. Um, like, so for, for example, one of the ways that you did it for effectively, you're looking at like the autocorrelation between these things. Um, and in the example, I wasn't sure how much detail would be worth going into, but effectively, like, 
to me it made that made sense given the nature of it because effectively there's this sort of like um there's a process to it essentially there, there, there there's essentially it did seem autocorrelational but are there other types of sort of correlation or linking that are possible other than what people might just broadly imagine is like oh we're just look at the correlation between these things like saying scale a is correlated to scale b like this that's a good question yeah yeah, yeah. um so correlations are one way of modeling for model linkages uh, and we have a recent paper coming up which thinks about you know correlations in terms of uh, a graph so you can imagine you know i have a node where this is a very high like the highest accuracy experiment that we can have but we can have multiple ways of going down from this mm -hmm. we have data that spans multiple uh, uh, uh you know multiple scales and multiple uh, stages right that uh can be simplified and so you know we can represent this thing in terms of a graphical structure again with the correlations between the uh each of the edges another way of thinking about linkages actually is in terms of the scientific models oftentimes i think most of the time right these linkages are much more than correlations mm -hmm. so one example would be um in the case where, let me think a little bit about this. Let's say there's some sort of approximation, right? Which goes on in terms of the simulation. Now we can do a direct simulation of um, a certain phenomenon, right? And that requires solving the PDE. Um, but there might be a quicker way, which uses some sort of spatial averaged approach, right? Some sort of sliding window over space or sliding window over time, which sort of discretizes, right? The solver. And we would get results much quicker and much more computationally efficient, but at the cost, right, of losing spatial resolution or temporal resolution. But in cases like that, right, there's a certain linkage between the high fidelity or the, the highest accuracy model and these sort of spatial averages, which, which is really a limiting relationship if you think about it, right? Because as we make the resolution finer and finer, we would approach the true solution. And so incorporating this within a probabilistic model, incorporating this sort of limiting behavior um, is also one really interesting direction, right? And this is really much more than saying, look, I have, uh, uh, you know, the lower, uh, lower accuracy experiment, higher accuracy experiment, and they're correlated by some correlation row, right? It's really describing this, this sequence of limiting behaviors that we have to model probabilistically, right? Um, and there's a lot of different cases that we can think about, right? Um, different types of model linkages from a scientific perspective, which really necessitate different modeling techniques from a statistical uh, predictive model, right? And integrating this type of prior information on what the scientific link linkages are, um, you know, should give you better predictive performance, right? Uh, if the assumptions are correct. Cool. Um, just to uh, sort of, I guess, circle back on that. So, for example, like um, on this linkage issue. So, for example, like uh, low pass filtering on sort of like highly noisy data. Is that is that an example of this sort of? Um, is that sort of like an example of like how you'd be linking it, but it would be there's a limitation to it. Um, but as you essentially remove the filtering, essentially you're approaching the limit of what the true right. underlying. Right. So in some sense, um, you know, and this is one of the, you know, some of the works that are you know recently in the literature, which is, look, um, in a lot of cases, right, if we assume we have a Gaussian process, 
then we're assuming that a priori, right? At different points in the parameter space, we have, uh, if you use a stationary kernel, then we have, um, you know, constant variance. You know, our, a priori, we assume that the surface has constant uh, prior uncertainty over the whole region, right? Um, but if you think about some of these experiments where we might have a certain parameter, call these things typically fidelity parameters, right? Where, you know, as we get closer and closer to zero, we get closer and closer to the true solution, right? Let's say from the approximation, but, you know, it becomes more and more expensive to solve, right? But if you think about, you know, in terms of just modeling our prior variance, our, 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 our prior variance about, you know, what the response surface looks like, as we decrease this fidelity parameter, right? We would a priori have more and more certainty, right? So if this uh, parameter were very large, so this was a very um, um, coarse uh, resolution experiment, then we would have higher variance, but we would progressively have lower, lower prior variance, right? As we increase the fidelity. And, you know, just something as simple as this, right? We could use something, uh, I mean, just from a prior assumptions, a standard Gaussian process might not be the best choice. And we might want to use something like a Brownian motion or something like that to sort of model the sort of decreasing variance behavior. Right. Um, and so that's one one approach that we can use to integrate this type of prior information. Yeah. But it really depends on what type of what type of linkages these are. Right. Uh, this could be this limiting behavior. This could be an averaging type of behavior. Uh, this can be many different things from the scientific model. And you know, each one of these different linkages really sort of open up a, an interesting sort of a, a, um, a new statistical approach, which can model this. Right. Um, would you mind? Uh... Um, you mentioned essentially like the, the graphical model representation. Um, would you mind sort of talking us through that? Because that, that seems really interesting to me because effectively you're making hard, uh, a very hard description of um, the interrelationship between these different... Um... Uh, that's, a, that's a great uh, point. So um, the idea in terms of this sort of... Uh, this is a very recent paper that's out on archive. Mm -hmm. And um, I'll pop up the picture of, of it. So if you sure, just want to... Sure. Yeah. Um, the idea here is that, well, we might have one very high accuracy experiment that we want to predict, mm -hmm. right? Um, but we might have many sort of a lower accuracy representations of this experiment, right? Um, but they're linked scientifically in very different ways. So again, maybe think about the case where we have um, that heavy ion collision experiment, right? Many different stages, right? And so we start off with the high fidelity or high accuracy. I use the word you know, fidelity for accuracy. Um, we start off with the high accuracy experiment, but at each of these stages, I might want to run something that's a little bit cheaper, right? So let's say if there's three stages and for each of those, I decrease the fidelity a little bit, then I sort of get three different ways of decreasing computation, right? So if I try to represent this thing as a graph, right? We would start off with the, the first node, right? Top node, the root node, as the high accuracy experiment, but I have three ways of going down, right, uh, into lower fidelity uh, representations. And in a lot of these scientific problems, at least in the ones that I work with, um, we can really sort of talk with the scientists a little bit and think about, well, what type of, you know, lower accuracy experiments can I use? And how are these linked together, right? How are these sort of model dependencies uh, linked together uh, from a scientific perspective? Um, and, but if we think about, you know, combining all of these dependencies together, you know, from a mathematical perspective, we will have, you know, you can think about this as having 
uh, a graph, right? A directed graph, which is connecting all of these nodes representing different experiments. And so that's really one form of the science as well, right? This particular, uh, uh, what we call a fidelity graph, right? Which links together the data that we have on hand or the data that we will simulate. And so, you know, integrating this graphical structure within a predictive model, uh, this is one of the, the recent papers that we have. We found that, you know, by integrating this graphical structure in uh, uh, within uh, what we use, you know, the, the tool that we like to use is a Gaussian process, right? Um, but if we integrate the structure within a Gaussian process, we will get, you know, oftentimes better predictive performance than ignoring the signs altogether, right? This is really important in a lot of these problems where, again, the data is on the, the high accuracy experiment, the data is very, very limited. And any sort of savings will save the engineers, you know, two or three times the cost, right? Uh, they'll be very happy to hear that. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Um, so I guess one of the things that I think is interesting is like, I get the idea of how, you know, the highest fidelity experiment is sort of this, like the top node. And uh, then effectively you'll have, um, lower fidelity parameterizations, I guess, if you will, um, that stem from that. Um, and then I guess by virtue of them all being connected, all the parameterizations or the low fidelity experiments being connected via that top high fidelity mode, I guess I, one of the things I was sort of turning over my head has, you might've seen me think about that is like, um, what does that mean about the conditional independence of these different, uh, fidelity, um, these different fidelity sort of parameterizations. Yeah, that's a great question. Conditional, because I, I I definitely like that description that effectively, what it's saying is like, it's all stemming from the true, the reality that's at the top. Um, and if you effectively condition that out, you don't need to know what's in the other ones. But would yeah, that be the case? Question. Sorry, and that, that anyway, so that, that's what I was thinking about. Um, but I'll, I'll let you talk, sorry. Yeah, no worries. Um, well, it's great that because it's worth thinking a little bit. So, um, in terms of formulating our model mm -hmm. uh, for that paper, right, which we call the graphical multi-fidelity Gaussian process, right, which is a really cool paper, by creative the way. name. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we could have thought about a better name, but yeah. Um, so the idea there, um, you know, by forming the Gaussian process in such a way, we will get some sort of conditional uh, dependence uh, statements out. You know, this um, essentially what we do is we build a uh, conditional Markov model, okay? um, and we sort of, um, you know, we can show that this particular model has certain properties which imply certain independence assumptions on the simulations, right? So the idea is that, well, you know, if I observe, right, if I have a high fidelity uh, uh, experiment and I observe its lower fidelity, its immediate lower fidelity components, then anything outside of that really tells you no additional information about the high fidelity experiment, right? And we can sort of uh, show this thing statistically about the models that we will integrate. Uh, of course, we should run these, you know, assumptions past the scientists and say, you know, this, this sort of makes sense, uh, you know, what we're assuming about the sort of independence, you know, this type of information, right? Uh, uh, assumption about the model. Um, and I, I think, you know, uh, this type of, uh, uh, um, this type of a uh, uh, direction is actually quite similar in some sense to the assumptions that are made in Bayesian networks as well, right? Um, where you know you have an underlying graph, right, uh, and you leverage some sort of conditional uh, independence assumptions there 
to build up, you know, uh, a probabilistic model where you can sort of filter information throughout the graph. Yeah, that, that is really helpful. I was because I, I couldn't help but think about. I like that a lot, and I, I, was, I was trying to think through it. And it's like, oh, well, why don't I ask the ex expert while he's right here um, for uh, some of that intuition? Um, so I guess one of the other things is, you know, maybe for the people listening, they might have heard, you know, a lot of things. You know, you have these like GPs, you have these uh, essentially uh, network GPs. Um, we have our you know physical equations and everything like that. Um, and uh, you know we had the the large eddy uh, models and things like that as well. So there's a lot of pieces, a lot of tools floating around. And um, I'm just wondering how much model innovation is required for the work that you're doing versus how much of it is you effectively just like innovating, by which I mean like actually grabbing the different pieces and putting them together in the most sensible way. Because it seems like you've done a good bit of sleuth work. Um, yeah, no, that's a great question. Um... Indeed, you know, when we sort of deal with applications and when we talk with the scientists, the problem is much more complex than what existing methods can deal with, right? This, this notion of like integrating science, right, within, you know, these predictive models is, uh, you know, at least in terms of the GP case is still a relatively new area, right? Um, but of course, when we talk with scientists, they have a lot of different scientific information that they can integrate in, um, each of which, right, if we take we, we just break apart this problem, each of which can be a really interesting paper in and of itself, right? So a lot of the work that I do is really trying to interface between the problem itself and using this to motivate, right? Different statistical models, which can deal with each individual component, right? And then, you know, uh, working with the scientists to build a model, which, you know, integrates these of these novel components together, right? To build something that really sort of works for them. Right, uh, because scientific information is clearly different for different applications, right? For different, different physics problems, right? Um, and to do like a, a convincing implementation of these for the scientists, right? To actually address the the, the full scale scientific problems, we re really need to combine, you know, many of these tools together, right? So it's really, uh, you know, it's really twofold, right? The first, you know, uh, part of my job is to try and pull out these principles from the scientists and then develop models which deal with each individual type of science, and then combine them together in a computationally efficient and scalable way, right? To really address that problem uh, for the scientists, right? Uh, so in the case where we do, you know, have 10 data points, right? Uh, by integrating all of this information in a structured, you know, scientifically principled way, we're actually able to solve that prediction problem, uh, which is quite challenging. Hey everyone, we're in the final stretch of our episode. And before you go, I'd really appreciate if you could give me feedback on three things. First, what was your favorite question of the episode? What did I do right? Secondly, what question did you wish that I asked but didn't? And third, what questions were brought up by this conversation that you'd like answered in the future? That's it. Enjoy the rest of the episode. Yeah, one of the projects I thought really epitomized this sort of um, multi-step multi um essentially uh, this pipeline, this like scientific inference pipeline that you did was uh, the aortic stenosis experiments. Because effectively, like when I was, I was looking through that, it's like there's always the next step and the next step. Okay. And so it's effectively, what was really interesting was because effectively you solved, you described the problem well, and then you started going into the details of like each step in the pipeline. And each step in that pipeline was honestly like a paper's worth in its own right. Yes. And it's like, in, in that you did it well, um, which... I thought was impressive. 
And then essentially we come back up to the surface and it's like, oh wait, then there's the next bit that yeah. we have to do. And so um, I thought that was really interesting, but maybe maybe that would just be just as a quick example, we can just sort of like describe that problem and the different steps because effect, because it also it's created such a, a like a semi-intuitive response where it's like, it was intuitive enough, uh, for example, and what I'll talk about is like the, um, well, uh, the, the structure that you discovered, it was something where it's like, ah, it makes sense that, like, but it wasn't like sense to like mathematically perfect thing. Anyway, so why don't you describe that problem? Um, because I think yeah, that yeah. people appreciate so, it. Right, right, right. So this was a problem. This is a aortic stenosis project that uh, was in collaboration with Georgia, uh, Georgia Tech Manufacturing. Right. And the goal is to, um, you know, develop these 3D printed aortic valves, which surgeons, right, doctors can then use right, um, to replace aortic valves, faulty aortic valves uh, within patients uh, um, uh, to sort of, uh, it's a, a surgical procedure to uh, for aortic stenosis, right. Um, but the challenge here, right, there's, you know, of course, when it comes to healthcare and, you know, uh, making sure that the surgical procedure works well for the patient, right, there's a lot of things that we have to consider. And one of the key things for these sort of uh, uh, artificial heart valves is that we want to make sure that it fits the patient well. Make sure that it's personalized, right? Because if it's not, then we run the clear danger of this valve, you know, uh, malfunctioning or even worse, being ejected into the heart, right? Which is not a good, uh, not a good thing. So the idea is that, well, you know, in terms of designing 3D printing procedure, there are many parameters that we can change, right? That will give you different material properties, which hopefully match that of the patient. Now, but if you think about these things as parameters, right? And we want to match a certain um, material profile, right, for the valve. Um, you can imagine this sort of goes back to the sort of expensive prediction problem where the amount of data is again limited. Because again, if we're going to prototype these valves and actually perform experiments uh, to get the material properties, it's expensive, right? Um, and similarly, if we're going to you know uh, program this into computer, right? Um, and, you know, uh, uh, perform simulations on this, you know, if this is sufficiently sort of um, high accuracy, then that can also be expensive. So again, we're, we're met with this uh, issue of limited data. But from a statistical perspective, it's actually quite interesting. This is one of the, the things that we explored in this paper, which is, look, the material properties, right, what we actually get to control in terms of these aortic valves is this thing, this functional form, called a metamaterial structure, right? Where, you know, we have this sort of soft polymer on the outside, but this sort of uh, stiffer metamaterial, sort of like a wire, right? In between, the, the, the functional form of this really controls the material property of this valve. Um, and so if you think about it, right, this is actually quite an interesting problem where your inputs are functional in nature, right? Uh, and then, you know, this comes to the problem of, well, how do we build a predictive model? A probabilistic predictive model, um, which takes functions as the inputs, um, and also, you know, in our case, uh, outputs functions as the outputs as well, because the material properties is in terms of a curve, not single valve. Um, and so, you know, given the problem of limited data and the fact that the 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 problem, right, inputs and outputs are quite complex, this is where we need some of the physics to sort of constrain the predictive model. And so, in in this work right here, which you know. Uh, uh, it's sort of like a different flavor of integrating physics, right? Because we don't have exactly you know, the 
the mechanistic principles necessarily, right, for the problem. Um, but we can elicit certain properties that might be useful. You know, for example, uh, spectral frequencies that might be important. Um, you know, independence assumptions uh, between the the curve and the input. All of that stuff. And so this is more of an applied project, but we integrate a lot of these assumptions, uh, these features into the the, the Gaussian process model. Um, and then we build a predictive model, which can, you know, for a given new, right, metamaterial input structure, this wire, uh, a new sort of a, 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 a metamaterial structure, we can predict what the material properties will look like in terms of a curve. Now, like you said, right, there's a lot of uh, parts to this problem and getting a predictive model really isn't the final solution, right? We still have to address the problem of trying to customize this for an incoming patient, right? And of course, this is one of the problems, yeah, as I was mentioning, where the problem itself is much more complex uh, than the papers that, you know, we, what we try to do is, you know, break the problem up into simpler sub-problems and then, you know, write a paper on that. But of course, solving the full-scale problem is going to require combining all of these methods together, right, uh, in a scalable and efficient way. But this is really where we use the predictive models because we then have to find, sort of like solving the inverse problem, where we have the new material, metamaterial structure from an incoming patient, right? Uh, and this can be through a certain CAT scan uh, uh, of a patient coming in. And we really sort of are, are against the clock, right? The patient needs to get the surgical procedure, needs to get the sort of uh, 3D printed valve within maybe a day, uh, mm -hmm. surgeries in a day. So we have to then, you know, get this curve and then pull it back to our predictive model and find what metamaterial structure would best mimic, we call this thing tissue mimicking, best mimic this sort of material property. Okay. Um, and so there's a lot of things that one has to integrate, right? Um, first, you know, performing this inverse problem can be quite difficult, right? But additionally, we have to also recognize the fact that a predictive model is not certain either, right? So we have to integrate the uncertainties of our predictive model when we're performing the inverse problem. Um, and so that's one of the things that we sort of dealt with within this sort of uh, Gaussian process. We call this thing a function-on-function -function, uh, Gaussian process model. Right, uh, is how to perform this sort of inverse problem efficiently, uh, such that if I have a new patient coming in, right, uh, we're able to get as good of uh, a mimicking performance as possible within that tight time frame. And that again really requires integrating the physics because without it, right, um, either the model takes too long to train, right, in which case the procedure will be entirely useless, mm -hmm. or the model will be very, very inaccurate, right, in which case, you know, you can get again. You know, procedure would be uh, just as dangerous and very dangerous procedure. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. No, I, I thought that, I thought that was a really interesting one, especially because, uh, just to like recap, basically the idea is that, uh, with aortic stenosis, uh, you're creating an artificial heart valve that's created via a synthetic material. And that synthetic material not only needs to essentially fit the actual like phys physiology or fit essentially the shape of the patient, but it should also have the uh, the synthetic properties of the material should essentially have like the strain and stress characteristics as close to um, organic material as possible. Um, and then what's interesting is that basically effectively like the form of your synthetic material is a function and um, some of the parameterizations of that are function too. And sort of the result at the end is a function and it's an uncertain function at that. And so 
putting all those things together. Um, it was, it was, yeah. Anyway, so I, I thought, I thought it was very cool, and it, it, it did seem, um, it, it was, it was very nicely pieced together. And I thought this was a very good example of how, um, for someone who has effectively done so much research integrating science, like all the way through, it was, what was interesting to me about that one is effectively you still kept certain bits parceled between each other. So it wasn't like you try to say, oh, I'm gonna have this one big cohesive thing and stick it all together. It's like, okay, I'm gonna solve this section the best way that I can integrating the physics. And now that I'm, is, is that correct? Or is yeah, it, was yeah, it more yeah, integrated yeah. than I, okay. No, no, this is, uh, this is exactly it. And I think that's a really interesting point because that's, especially in sort of talking with the scientists more and understanding their problem, right? Um, it's exactly what you said, you know, we, we really try to, you know, pull from the problem, interesting statistical questions, uh, which are quite novel, right. Um, but are quite useful, right. In terms of addressing this. So uh, again, this is sort of like this, uh, two-way procedure, right? One is, um, we start with a problem and filter out interesting statistical questions, address those, and then, you know, integrate all of these models together to mm -hmm. build a pipeline that works for the practitioner. Yeah. Cool. Uh, if you don't mind me asking, um, cause basically, um, you know, we've talked about all of, like this, like PDE work and stuff like that. I was wondering just broadly, um, as a less mathematical individual, um, as, as mathematical as I need to be, but no more, no, not an ounce more. Um, uh, is the scientific mathematics that gets embedded in some of these models, um, is it always going to be of that sort of ODE, PDE nature, like the Navier-Stokes equations and things like that? Or, you know, you mentioned monotonicity. Um, is the, is like sky's the limit with which actual mathematics you can put into these things or, um, does it, can it spread out? What are there other places where it seems very promising, even if it isn't well-developed? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so. I mean, the, 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 the examples that I was, uh, you know, mentioning previously, you know, a, a lot of times deal with, uh, the actual PDEs, um, or properties of that PDEs that we need to integrate. Right. So, um, and it really, you know, I, I think, uh, uh, one of the considerations that we have to make here is really this trade off between how much physics we can integrate. Right. And what is the computational efficiency of the model that we get? I guess it's really sort of this uh, the spectrum there, right? On one hand, if we integrate all of the physics in terms of the PDE uh, and you know the full scale equations uh, from the physics, then it's very expensive to solve, right? Um, and that's where we really need the predictive model. But on the other hand, if we treat everything as a black box, right, then it can be very computationally efficient, but the results you get might not be interpretable, might not be what the scientists want. Um, and so the amount of information that you really want to integrate really has to consider, right, what information you have and how easily this information can be integrated into the model, right, to get an efficient predictive model. And this could be in the form of PDEs if that PDE can be integrated into uh, the statistical model. This can be forms of the PDEs or it can be physical knowledge, right? And again, going back to that example where if I drop a ball, it's going to go down, right? It's not going to jump back up in the middle of the air. So oftentimes, you know, we can elicit some of these physical principles, right, uh, into our predictive model. And sometimes it's really, you know, and, and this is some of the work that we explored recently in terms of these sort of a manifold uh, embedded Gaussian processes, right? Um, this uh, GPS paper, Gaussian process subspace prediction paper, where a lot of times, right, the physics 
has to be learned from the data, right? But we know that the physics is embedded in a certain way, right? in fact, in terms of manifold structure. Um, and so the problem building predictive model is to first learn this manifold and then build a predictive model which can predict the different physics that goes on, right? So again, I think uh, it's exactly what you said. The sky's the limit because scientific information, it's so vast and so many different varieties uh, that for different problems, one can probably elicit, right? A wide range of these principles, right? Uh, and integrate them, right? And pull a, an interesting, multiple interesting statistical questions uh, for modeling these type of scientific information, right? Yeah. And I, I would also say that in this case, this probably, you know, this idea of integrating domain knowledge in this sort of uh, 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 integrated way probably extends beyond uh, science, you know, this sort of sci science integrated prediction uh, problems as well. Right, um, because you know, and this is some of the work that we're doing. You know, uh, for example, in uh, finance uh, or even in sort of uh, music composition. Right, this is just this recent interesting work uh, where we're trying to embed a lot of these, you know, you know, musical principles into creating composition. Right, uh, as opposed to just treating you know the data as um, as uh, just data and dumping it within some very complex neural networks, some very complex deep learning model and have it spit out, you know, results, right? So I think this idea really sort of, a, you know, comes into play whenever you're trying to apply predictive models in a wide range of contexts, yeah. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to uh, the follow-up conversation on um, the sort of the latent uh, Gaussian process work um, and the manifold, um, uh, manifold GPs. Um, I'm, I'm definitely looking forward to, uh, just for the audience to know, this conversation is going to be followed up by a subsequent one on the uh, manifold uh, Gaussian process work. Um, and so, yeah, I'm I, very excited about that. And um, just the range of, you know, just essentially integrating that learning process, um, that learning with the physics we're essentially saying where it's beyond our ken to know um, it must be learned empirically. And then essentially that's going to be tied in directly with the model that's going to be then taking that empirically learned knowledge and providing the next, I guess, predictive step or whatever, you know, um, I think, I think that is very cool. And, you know, it definitely, it seems to me that it relates back to, um, it's just one more step along, for example, compared to that, the heart valve data where effectively the properties of the tissue are also, uh, they're experimentally, uh, discovered as well. So effectively, as opposed to the experiment being before, it seems like essentially your statistical model is helping figure out what that experiment should be um, and going from there. But um, for those, for people who think this is really cool, like myself, like is there some type of like Simon Mac training regime or something you did to get up to speed? <laughs> like you wake up, you do like 100 push-ups, then you eat like a physics textbook and start your day. Um, how do you sort of pick up the domain knowledge that you need to? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so my and background. Quickly, how do you do it quickly? Yeah, sorry. How do you do it quickly? Yeah, yeah. crash course on this, right? Um, yeah, no. Uh, so I didn't have much of a physics background either. Uh, but it's really, you know, in conversations, at least for myself, it's conversation with physicists. And I think, you know, a lot of the work that I do, right? Um, you know, and that's where really presentations come into play, uh, because I only have a short sort of amount of time to sort of explain, right, the statistician what the problem is and what type of science there are uh, that would be interesting to integrate there, right? Um, so what type of crash course? 
<laughs> is it That's just like hard. read and you just figure out um because i know it like uh, recently i've been going through uh so the oxford university press has these books called a uh, very brief introduction and they're effectively like pocket-sized books done usually by like nobel laureates and other very high people in the field um and it's usually about 150 pages of an introduction to something. And so I've just been using those and reading them on my run. Uh, so basically I pop them in audiobook and that's what I do. Uh, my most recent one, I've been listening to uh, Richard Dawkins. Um, for a related one, it's not one of those series, but effectively just like trying to, you know, get back to understanding the biological and physical properties of the phenomena that I said, because, you know, I'm in patient vital sign monitoring. Um, that is a very phenomenological aspect. Like the, the, I, at my level, there's not going to be the physics that's involved, but there sure. are scientific principles at work that I want to know as well as possible. Um, but yeah, I was, I was just a little bit curious, like, is it that you um, just, you sit down and you say, okay, here's an undergrad paper describing this. Here's a tutorial and you just work through the math and go from yeah, there. No, that's a great, that's a good question because uh, it got me thinking a little bit. So at least for myself, right? Again, I didn't have much background in physics. Uh, and to be quite honest with you, there's, as a statistician, right, you're never going to have enough background in terms of, um, like, actually, you know, for example, you're you're put on a project in nuclear physics, right? You have to learn on the spot. You're, it's not something that you can pick up beforehand, right? Uh, but that's where sort of keeping an open mind in terms of having discussions with scientists, right, and really understanding what, um, what the problem is, right, and asking sort of inquisitive questions, uh, in terms of these projects, um, this, this idea of sort of prior elicitation really comes into play, right? Because um, we, we really want to elicit what type of information the scientist has, right? And really understand what the crux of the problem is scientifically, right? It's not trying to uh, think about, look, I have this tool, right? I have this model, and I'm going to try and fit this in every single application that I work on, right? It's really coming from the problem. In. It's a, it's a problem-solving approach, Right, uh, where you understand the problem, uh, you talk with the scientists, uh, you know, and from there, right, that can you, you can sort of you know do like a guided sort of exploration of what this is and exactly what you said. You know, some of these interesting sort of uh, uh, audiobooks or you know uh, even just uh, you know uh, presentations, uh, you know, going to different conferences for for these uh, these scientific uh, uh, domains, right, may help. Uh, but I, I think that the first, you know, the the most important thing is really sort of keeping an open mind and keeping the sort of approach for problem solving, right? Rather than trying to fit a, a tool into many different uh, domains, right? Uh, because um, in every single problem, the, the science will be different. Um, and, you know, that's where sort of taking this problem solving approach and understanding what the problem is um, and then catering a statistical method for that problem, right? Will be very, very helpful. What do you think uh, on on that topic of like different approaches? Do you think that other people are there other people who basically uh, do something? I'm not, I wouldn't say orthogonal because I use the word orthogonal way too often. It's <laughs> a complementary. Yeah, complementary. <laughs> um, whose their approaches are very different that you think like ah oh, that's a very that's a very useful complement. Um, what 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 would be sort of those complementary approaches to what you do? Is it just for example the purely phenomenal like phenomenological modeling where it's just pump this in, assume it's all black box, do our best and tell us what's coming out. Or is there something a bit more principled in between? Right. So or I even more principled than what you do in sense. It's 
Go on. Yeah. yeah. But I think in this case, again, this is a sort of a trade-off, right? And statisticians and scientists are oftentimes on different spectrums of that trade-off and different ends of that spectrum. Um, as statisticians, oftentimes we think about the data as just being collected, right? And then we, uh, we feed it into a model. Um, it's more a uh, purely data-driven approach, whereas the scientists like to think about things in terms of a purely science-driven approach, in terms of scientific models, building things up from the ground up, right? Um, and so, you know, on that topic, right, I'd say the existing methods for predictive, we call this, you know, scientific, uh, predictive scientific modeling or predictive scientific computing, right? Um, the standard literature on this and the standard approaches on this are largely deal with just data-driven approaches, right? Taking the data from the scientific experiments and just plugging into existing um, models, right? Which don't integrate the science. Now, of course, you know, in, in a lot of these applications, people are finding out that look, as technology improves, right? As you know, experimental uh, uh, technology improves, as computing improves, right? Um, you know, the amount of data really becomes a problem, and that's where we really have to sort of search somewhere in the middle of that spectrum. And there's been, you know, scattered uh, but interesting work. Um, on integrating science within predictive models, of course. Um, uh, you know, applied mathematicians, engineers have been exploring these directions um, uh, with different types of models. Right? Uh, so people in the applied math community have been exploring this in terms of uh, polynomial chaos, um, you know, a variety of different models which integrate different forms of scientific information. Now, I think one of the things that sort of uh, distinguish the work that we do from uh, this line of work is we try to integrate this from a Bayesian perspective, right? We think about information, prior information, scientific information, as prior information to feed into a probabilistic model. So really, sort of thinking about sort of this uh, modeling as a, as a, as, a, as sort of like a prior elicitation procedure, where we try to elicit all the available signs from the scientists, right? Um, and this has several advantages, right? One is that, you know, having a probabilistic model, especially in these predictive models, uncertainty is a key component. For example, if you take that heart valve example, if we're not able to spit out the uncertainty of that particular predictive model, this can mean the difference between life or death, yeah. right, for the patient. Um, and so it's not just getting the prediction, but also nailing down the predictive uncertainty and reducing that as well. Um, and that's where a Bayesian view of this integration of science, I think, really comes into play. Um, so I think that's a really interesting area. And, you know, as we sort of talked about, right, there's many types of science, many types of basic predictive models that one can integrate this in. You know, we use Gaussian processes, but there can be a wider range of models, right? And this really opens up, uh, at least my view, right, uh, a lot of really interesting directions to explore statistically, right? Uh, you know, many different types of sciences, uh, many different types of models. What's the best one to sort of integrate? How would this sort of, uh, you know, um, uh, speed up uh, the the pipeline for scientific discovery, right? Um, there's a lot of interesting work there. Yeah, when you talk about uh, the elicitation of priors, because I think that, you know, maybe people who are from the more frequentist uh, side of the neighborhood, um, when they think about priors, essentially they're just thinking about basic like prior distributions over parameters and things like that and essentially for that regularization. But, um, you know, that that's all well and good. And you can have your hyper priors over your Gaussian process hyperparameters and things like that. But effectively, it's the same thing. It's just regularizing priors over an individual parameterization. But what I think that's, it's a bit of a different step change when effectively, you're not just talking about saying, oh, I'm using these to regularize, but effectively, like, 
when you're talking about like this, a functional prior and things like that, where effectively you're saying, um, all this extra information is actually just part of the whole function. It's not just to regularize one parameter. Um, is that an important conceptual hurdle or am I just splitting hairs? Cause I'm not, I think that's a really enough. great point. No, that's a, that's an important hurdle because exactly what you said, right? Uh, I'll use the, the example of Gaussian process modeling. This is something I probably should explain a little bit earlier, which is look, a Gaussian process from a Bayesian perspective is really placing a prior model on what the response surface would look like before I observe data, right? And that I would condition on the data to observe, right? mm -hmm. um, and, 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 and learn, uh, what the function actually looks like. Now, in our case, right, what we try to do is- Oh, sorry, is just to very quickly interject, yeah. just so that people have an idea about it. It's like, so for effectively, like, you know, people who are used to the Gaussian process, they're used to essentially that sausage link um, <laughs> de uh, description of it. But, you know, that's, and then they usually do something like, okay, we'll just assume that it's a mean zero Gaussian process. And that's already putting in some hard information in there. But, you know, there's nothing stopping me from saying that, like, my prior is a Gaussian process uh, with a linear mean function or, you know, an exp uh, an exponentially decreasing mean function and things like that. So like there, there's other bits in here that can deviate from that. That's essentially already putting in hard information. So I hope that, uh, yeah, yeah, no, that, that, that's a great clarification. So people, you know, at least in the existing sort of a Gaussian process modeling, right? There are ways of integrating information in there, right? Like you said, uh, using different correlation functions, you know, the return Gaussian correlation, um, using different mean functions that we have that information in. And I guess what we're doing here is sort of taking that one step further and thinking about, look, if we know, for example, if the response surface is monotone, right? How do we build a Gaussian process, right? Or, you know, some form of predictive model, uh, Bayesian predictive model, which, uh, which can integrate, you know, where, where sample draws from this process will be monotone with high probability or with probability one. Or for example, in this case, maybe in, uh, we have some information about uh, the the underlying black box function being generated from a PDE. And we have certain boundary conditions, initial conditions, and all of that fun stuff. How do we integrate that into the probabilistic model such that sample draws from this probabilistic model will give me these, you know, these properties, again, with high probability or with probability one? Right, because if we're able to do that, then we have, you know, a way of integrating prior information, right, from the scientists into the model, and all we have to then do is condition on the data, right, and this has several advantages. Right? This can improve prediction, but this can also drastically reduce predictive uncertainty, right, uh, and both of these are crucial in cases where, again, I'll pull up that example. You have five to ten data points in twenty dimensions, and you know, you're really sort of stuck if we don't integrate this type of information in there. Yeah, you can imagine, for example, that sort of like classic thing where the uh, Gaussian process when the posterior prediction starts drooping, it goes back towards the mean when you've basically just said something like, I'm going to, uh, usually they say, they, uh, I don't know, make it a mean reverse zero. Back to the mean, yeah. yeah, it reverts back to the mean. Um, and, um, which, you know, like, I, I think there's some bits where people say, well, like, are you even Bayesian at that point? If you're already uh, essentially, if you're making it a mean zero, yeah. then effectively you're already using the data. You're looking ahead at your data before you're specifying the mean. I'm, I deal with enough data where like, that's not really the biggest problem that I have to deal with. Um, in fact, I could literally just take some data, throw it, use that to calculate the mean, throw it out and use all the rest. But um, 
just an example about how it like reduces the posterior uncertainty. People could imagine, take that usual thing where essentially imagine there's like some curve and then the Gaussian process posterior droops back down to the mean afterwards. Whereas if you know that it's monotonic, you've now just cut out literally half of all the space, you know, and so you, you know where it's going to go from there. Um, and for example, if you know, you know, uh, certain boundary conditions, for mm -hmm. example, if you're trying to protect over the space, but you know, right, at this particular boundary on this hyperplane, it's going to equal this particular value. Right? Mm -hmm. That can squish down the Gaussian process right away, right, and give you a lot more information about the problem. And in some sense, that's trying to make the most out of, uh, you know, make the most use out of the data that you collect, which is very expensive, right? Um, and so integrating this information, um, you know, really has, well, statistically has two advantages, right? Improve prediction, reduce uncertainty, but also from a scientific perspective, and I think this is often overlooked, this also gives a model which the scientists can take a look at and not frown, right? <laughs> and not be like, you know, have to jump sort of over different hurdles to sort of justify that model, right? Having a ball sort of jump up in the middle of the air. Yeah. Uh, I think that's also quite important um, in establishing sort of a, trust between scientists and statisticians as well well that is really cool and uh simon i really appreciate your uh time today um yeah, i'm looking forward to the uh, follow-up conversation on manifolds um i'm hoping that this becomes like essentially a series of conversations uh it's gonna be a little bit gaussian process heavy but i think people will survive <laughs> oh, well, we deal with other predictive models as well so, mm -hmm. you know. yeah. um but yeah it's not like harry potter you just keep them under the under the stairs um <laughs> Um, but yeah, uh, I guess one final question that I just ask everyone at the end, you know, um, what is, and you can choose whether or not you want to be statisticians or scientists. Um, what is one topic or question that you'd like to see statisticians or scientists debate? That's a really good question. And I think that's something that I think a little bit about as well. Uh, I guess the, the question of debating is more, um, let's say, uh, more discussing like a topic where they, they would discuss about you know, how to, um, I think one, one topic that would be interesting, and this relates to uh, the conversation that we have here is, you know, for different problems, scientists come again, going back to that spectrum, right? Scientists think about things in terms of their models, right? And so this is a purely science driven approach, um, where statisticians think about things in terms of just data purely data-driven approach with little science. And I would like to see a conversation, right? Perhaps not a debate, but a conversation, a discussion about, you know, where is that optimal point in the uh, in between science-based and data-based learning, right? Uh, which will give you the most bang for your buck, right? Uh, give you the most efficiency for uh, uh, and the maximum power for the, the data that you observe, which in many cases is very expensive. Um, and this conversation i think really is domain specific um and it relates you know it, it can sort of spur a lot of interesting developments in both the statistical modern literature as well as you know how we perform the sort of scientific discovery pipeline right because it, it involves thinking about well what information should i integrate right and maybe it's not all of the information because if i integrate all of the information i'm basically back at the beginning with the scientific model being too expensive right but think about what information we can integrate, what information is important, right? And how do we sort of integrate that model in and give you scientific conclusions which are interpretable, right? Are efficient and, you know, are, are, are useful, right? Um, so 
you know, I think that's one area where it really deserves further discussions between scientists and statisticians. And I think, uh, you know, you know, I think both sides have to be sort of open-minded and sort of thinking about how, you know, how we integrate aspects from the other side uh, in terms of building, you know, workflows that are, you know, that that can be used uh, in light of these, you know, very expensive, very sophisticated, but very expensive experimental procedures. Yeah, on that note, I, it remind me of two things. One, um, I'm not I'm sure, not sure if you've heard of this, but there's the fallacy of the beard or the fallacy of the pile where, you know, it's basically just like you have a pile of sand and you take so many things away. And there's no one point where it becomes goes from being a pile to not a pile. Or there's no point in your unshavenness where you've gone from having a beard to not having a beard. Um, <laughs> and Fair enough. yeah, it's, it's, and it's an important fallacy where it's basically saying like, just because there's no individual point, which distinguishes no discrete point, it doesn't mean that there's no difference. Um, you know, evolutionarily there's, uh, there's no individual point where our like 35 millionth ancestor was distinctly was definitely a fish versus, you know, uh, an advanced primate. Um, and, um, but they are distinct species, you know, the, the speciation occurs despite the fact that there's no, um, um, that there's no single cutoff where this happens. Um, and for me, this seems like one of those problems are effectively, uh, my critical thinking is needed because basically there's never going to be any individual point where, you know, definitively, um, I don't know if it was, maybe it would be an empirical thing where effectively at some point predictions fall off a cliff, you don't like it. Um, anyway, so that was one of the thoughts that I had. Um, yeah. But the other- really deserves oh, further discussions with, you know, that's where the two communities have to really come together. Mm -hmm. Because I think right now, one of the, the things uh, that's really hindering progress is, you know, it's just this lack of discussion about like what the other, what tools the other side has and what type of information the other side has as well, right? We're trying to integrate this all together uh, to actually address the problem, right? The problem-solving uh, perspective, yeah. Yeah. The the other thing that I was thinking about was, you know, um, wh whether or not, uh, um, basically, how well respected or how much respect a statistical model will get from scientists. To me, that also seems, as you mentioned, something that's very domain-specific because, effectively, you know, when you're talking to a physicist who's extremely comfortable with quantitative models, um, essentially, the reverence with which they have for your model is nowhere near the level since someone who's less quantitatively trained. And there are plenty of less quantitative people doing very rigorous science, uh, like lab sciences, for example, where typically with, you know, a few exceptions that people really dig into it, um, they have a certain number of statistical techniques that they've been trained at, um, but they're super eager and always happy to have a statistician come in and be like, let me, let me handle this bit for you um, because they know it's more accurate. And so I guess the level of scrutiny that would be applied to a statistical model from someone coming like very focused in, for example, like lab sciences, biological sciences, where they're already doing their own physical experiments versus the physics area where they've done a ton of quantitative modeling on their own, right? Um, yes. Two different conversations right there. Exactly. And that's where I think for each of these problems, right, uh, there really needs to be a discussion, right? Uh, mm -hmm. A careful discussion between the scientists and the modeler. Cool. Well, Simon, thanks so much for your time. And also thanks for always, you know, just putting forth good, intriguing work. I, I always enjoy it. And I definitely, um, uh, Simon's page will be in the description so you can see it and see what I'm talking about. Uh, very cool presentations and very cool work. Thank you very so, much. Glenn. This is a thank you, Simon. Chat.